what is our responsibility to answer what Frederick Buechner notes is at the root of everyone's wish, which is the notion that I belong. How am I responsible, Chad, for your belonging? The world around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Jerry Colonna, the CEO and co-founder of Reboot.io. For nearly 20 years, he has used the knowledge he gained as an investor, an executive, and a board member for more than 100 organizations to help entre entrepreneurs and others to lead with humanity, resilience, and equanimity. And today in particular, we're discussing his new book, Reunion. You can order it now from our show notes if you like. It's available for pre-order until it releases on November 14th. Reunion is, I would call it, a life-altering guide for today's complex and divisive world. It is full of wise insights and practical advice that is intended to help create an inclusive and welcoming workspace and to discover the best of who we are and to nurture it and support those whom we are privileged to lead. Jerry Colonna, welcome to The Big Self Show. Thank you, Chad. It's, it's really a delight to see you and to be with you today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, I am too. And uh, it's, I really am looking forward to this and have been. And it's a delight to have you on again. You're mm. uh, the only, the, the second return guest on the Big Self Show. So mm. um, you must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and maybe we are to have mm. you. It's a real honor. Oh, um sweet. You, uh, so we're contextualizing this conversation around your second book, which is getting ready to be released into the mm. wild, uh, reunion, uh, reunion. Um, it is, uh, leadership and the longing to belong. Right. And, uh, you, you open it up with, uh, this beautiful epigraph by, by Frederick Beekner, and which, uh, which, reads as this, there lies in the longing to know and be known by another fully and humanly. 
And that and and that beneath that there lies a longing closer to the heart of the matter still, which is the longing to be at long last where you fully belong. Do you think that you could describe what being in, does that describe what being in your big self means to you? Well, I would not have made that immediate connection, but uh, first of all, let's just acknowledge the brilliance of Frederick Buechner and that summation. And, you know, the truth is I spent two and a half almost three years working on this book. And it was only in the very last weeks that I found that quote. And so it's one of these uh, wonderful happenstances where when the student was ready, the teaching appeared to to, uh, play with that uh, old teaching. And I think you've hit upon something very, very important, which is... um, if we were to sort of go back and say, what does big self mean? Um, it does not mean grandiosity. It does not mean uh, an ego-based myself over someone else's self. What it means is to me is that um, when I am known, when I am held, when I am accepted as I am, when I know into my bones that I belong, then I get to live my big self. Then I get to live um, that which the universe, the divine karma set out for me long before I was even born. And that is, that does in some ways um, summarize so much of what uh, you're exploring uh, richly in in this book. Um, You know, and so you spent two or three years writing the book, you know, it might be easy to say that um, of the two plus decades you've spent since, you know, living in your ranch outside Boulder, Colorado, Mm. that you've come a long way from your Brooklyn life. Mm. Uh, But then again, that's exactly what you're always teaching, that you never do um, leave yourself and that you take your experiences with you wherever you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you mean uh, that that your book feels like a turning point or a shift? but but that it's also about staying rooted. Well, I think that the the, the shift that I refer to, um, if we go back for a moment to things that we've spoken about before on the first time I was on the show, and we go back to the themes that I wrote about in my first book, Reboot, um, one of the important aspects of the work that I do in the world is to help people understand how they've contributed, how they've helped create the life that they're leading right now. Because um, we tend to operate with the assumption that things happened to me. And while things often happen to us, we disavow our own agency 
in to use your terminology the mate the creation and maintenance of the big self um so that's part one and that's a necessary part of the process of living into the fullness of who we are the second part of that process which is what i try to address in reunion is and so then what what are our obligations, moral, ethical obligations to the world around us? Who are we in a world uh, where people are experiencing marginalization or people are experiencing their the inability for their big self to show up, right? And I think that this is a really central question for us right now. Um, uh, especially those of us who have enjoyed um, the comforts of uh, power and, dare I even say, privilege. What is our responsibility to answer what Frederick Buechner notes is at the root of everyone's wish, which is the notion that I belong? How am I responsible? Chad, for your belonging. And um, in a world where it just seems we're increasingly at odds with one another, there's something empathetically powerful in first getting my own stuff together and then extending from that place and saying, and how can I help you feel like you belong? You're um, right. And your, your book, it, it's very, uh, besides it be like, I think your, your, your craft as, as a, as a writer uh, continues to emerge in your, in your own life. Uh, but what this book, it's really challenging. Mm. <laughs> I just It's beautiful. Mm. Um, and you, but let's, let's just keep it instead of just, I, I, there's a lot I want to tell you about, like how I really admire your storytelling, and I see that um, just mm. grow. It's inspiring mm. to me as well. Overall, let's just say this: that you say a lot of like, how am I complicit in, and how have I benefited from mm -hmm. the power structures that be? Mm -hmm. uh, that is a a big. Uh, a tough question. Right. It is. It's a really, it's, it's not a question that we all want to really, really look at um, comfortably. Um, and I guess what we should also perhaps write in here in this moment, just like the context in which your book is coming out, I think you just kind of referred to it. It's let's at least just look at it. it's coming out in a context of uh, if there's if we're living in a binary between cold and hot, the times are becoming hot. Polarized. Amen, brother. Amen. Right. So uh, let, yeah. let, 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 let's go back and unpack mm -hmm. it for a moment. So the first question that animated, or the question that animated my first book was, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Right? 
Now, what I often point out is I purposefully use the word complicit to evoke the notion of being an accomplice, to not trigger mm. the heat-seeking missile of guilt and shame. See, uh, I've had this strange phenomena happen where uh, since I sort of began talking about that question, it kind of reverberates around the internet and it's on Twitter threads and Instagram and all of this stuff. And it's clearly a provocative question. And <laughs> almost 20, 30% of the time I have to pop in and say, no, I did not say, how have I been responsible? I said, how have I been complicit? Hmm. And this is important. So I'll give you an image. When uh, when a bank robbery happens, there's the person who sticks up the teller, and then there's the person who drives the getaway car. The person who drives the getaway car is the accomplice. Okay, so there is a responsibility that one has, but they didn't do the robbery. Now, why is this important? Because many of the things that we do, many of the ways that we contribute the conditions to the conditions that we say we don't want, uh, we're acting as an accomplice to forces that were laid down long before we were born. Uh, so for example, if we look at a complex relationship with money, uh, money is the root of all evil. Therefore, I cannot accumulate money. Well, first of all, money isn't the root of all evil. Love of money is the root of all evil. That was the quote. <laughs> but um, uh, but even that starts to unpack things. Now, what I do in reunion is I turn that question from an inward question to an outward question. And you're right, it's challenging because we don't want to see ourselves as contributing to, say, the polarization or contributing to the experience of people who are suffering in the world. We don't want to see ourselves as that way. And equally important, we really don't want to see ourselves as benefiting. So take it, just take the gender bias uh, paradigm for a moment. It is difficult. You know, I sit here with you as a white, cis, straight man. It's difficult for men to acknowledge patriarchy exists and we benefit from it because it's difficult because we think we are therefore responsible and then we tip over into this morass of guilt and the natural response is defensiveness. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't help anybody <laughs> stop. But acknowledging that the world is inequitable is the first step to creating equity. It's really that simple and that hard and that challenging. Right, because the very first thing that comes to mind is, hey, I, it's, life is hard for me too. No one is <laughs> denying that. Right. You know? Right. No one is saying it's yeah. not hard too. That's right. Right. But, you know, like in, in Reboot, I told the story of, almost dropping out of college and being the recipient of a gift of a scholarship 
given to me by a wonderful professor named Robert Greenberg, God rest his soul, who out of the blue said, no, you're not dropping out. There's a scholarship. I'm the only judge. You're getting the scholarship. It's going to pay your tuition for two years. It was wonderful. It's it it changed my life. It set me on a trajectory. And if there's any good I do in the world, the good is based on that one moment where this man literally saved me. And it is quite possible that because he and I were both identifying as white and he and I were both identifying as male, that he saw in me something of a protege that he might not have seen in someone else. And so in a very simple way, I could have been the recipient of a life-changing scholarship because of the body that I live in. Now, I don't feel guilt about that fact, but I do have a responsibility to acknowledge that that may have been the case. Because that's what human beings do. We are biased towards people who look like us, hmm. who operate like us, who think like us. And if we go back to the Frederick Buechner quote, that bias can interrupt the other person's sense of belonging. And all I'm asking is for people to consider the possibility that they have been complicit in creating conditions in the world that they say they don't want. There's a, a bit a big direction sort of that I intuitively want to go to. But before we I go to that, it's more um, I guess we need to make say a couple of more, like take a couple of more steps along the the path that you're laying out here. And uh one is um a story, an illustration that you share that happened during the effectively the pandemic with, with your daughter challenging you. Um, uh, about how, let's just say, um, she was challenging you not just to be an ally. Right. Could you, could you tell it, could you give us that illustration and, and make, connect some of those dots for us? Sure. So my daughter's name is Emma and she's today, she's 30 or this year she's, she'll be 31 this year. And, uh, and this happened in the summer of 2020. And like a lot of folks, um, she, despite the pandemic, um, and if you recall, COVID was raging out of control, <coughs> excuse me. And, um, she, despite all that, she, like many people took to the streets to protest, uh, the murder of George Floyd. And I live in Colorado. I live, uh, near the foothills of the Rockies. I live on a farm. And it's a beautiful location. And it wasn't a bad place to be stuck during a pandemic. And one night, Emma was um, part of a large protest that had begun it in Brooklyn, um, uh, outside of the Barclays Center, where the Nets and the Liberty play, which became a locus of protests. And she was part of a group of about 5,000 people who began to march 
from Brooklyn to Manhattan across the Manhattan Bridge. And at one point, a phalanx of police were behind the marchers in Brooklyn, and then another phalanx was coming in from Manhattan. So the protesters were frozen and trapped, if you will, on the bridge. And Emma is scared. And she starts texting her dad. And we start to talk about what she should do if she gets pepper sprayed. Because the police are obviously, they're agitated, they're scared. It's a very volatile situation. And it's in that moment that something she used to say to me all the time, and I should identify that Emma is a fierce advocate for social justice. And she identifies as a biracial straight woman. And she uh, would say to me um, with that critical voice of a young girl talking to her father, dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. And what she meant was it's not enough for you to sort of talk about the world and say, oh, it's terrible, but you actually have to be an active voice in making the world better. That's what she means by a co-conspirator. Now, to be clear, she was raised by two parents who are very committed to justice. And so this didn't spring out of nowhere, right? But what she was doing was turning my words back to me and saying to me, how committed are you, dad? And it was that impulse, there I am safe, sound on a 40 acre farm in Colorado, <laughs> when all these folks are not only risking their lives because of protesting, they're risking their lives because of COVID for an injustice that needed to be addressed. And you know, what is the teaching from the Bible and the children shall lead us, hmm. right? I mean, um, it was in that moment that I committed to being the ancestor that my descendants deserve. I like that frame. Um, well, like speaking of which, then let's take another step along some of these important and challenging ideas that you um, put forth, which is um, what do you mean about like this idea of being racialized as white? And I guess, could you share with us just some of that, the family history you delved into? Sure. Um, yeah. Just that so, experience of them feeling like other. Yeah. So um to, to provide context for it, the, the reunion process, as I describe it, what is a reunion? It's, it's a reuni reunification with the, not just the myths of who our ancestors were, but the truth of their experience. A reunification, not just with others out in the world, but, but with the parts of ourselves that we have dismembered the parts of ourselves that we hide from ourselves, And that becomes the foundational component for actually being able to see the other person, the person who identifies differently from the way we identify, to be able to see them 
as kinfolk, not as the other, not as a threat, whether they're an, uh, uh, someone trying to cross the southern border of the United States, or whether it's a woman in the boardroom, or it's uh, someone who identifies in a gender, uh, non-binary gendered way. The point is to see, to really experience the other person, we have to first really experience ourselves. And so what you're referencing is a journey that I went on, which is to understand not just the myth of my ancestors, oh, they were so resilient, they came from Italy and Ireland, and why can't they, those say, seeking uh, the teeming masses, seeking to come to these shores, right? Um, why can't they do what my ancestors did? And so in that journey, I look at their movement to what I would call their movement towards whiteness. And I explore the fact that when immigrants from Italy and Ireland first came to the United States, they were not considered white. So how did I become white? Mm. Because that is an unexpected, right? The presumption that I walk around with is I have always been white. Well, if my grandparents weren't white, then were my parents? And what does whiteness mean? Right? We think it's about skin pigmentation, but in fact, it's much more complex than that. And simply acknowledging that fact is radical because we are not socialized. We're not racialized to question how our identity and through our identity, our sense of belonging came to be. You, you, you said that the questions I ask are challenging. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But Chad, here's the thing. Little children are dying. Little children are dying. And if that doesn't move us to question and to lean into challenging points, I don't know what will. Little children are dying. Some of them are dying by their own hands because of how we don't answer collectively the longing to belong. And yeah, um, that is, uh, that's an inescapable uh, truth and reality. And I think, um, you know, that's you, whether it's, we're talking about organizations, the world, exactly. or even our own selves. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's deeply important to, uh, I don't even know about confront the truth or just be willing to be confronted by it. And yes, you're, that idea of radical responsibility is very resonant that you've been talking about um, since at least your first book. Right. Um, 
Well, you, this is this conversation is leading me to want to share something that happened uh, to me because I I want to make a couple of connections to what you're saying. Um, on July 22nd, Saturday, July 22nd, uh, I almost I almost drowned uh, oh. on on the Ocoee River, and I don't want to like overly dramatize it in, mm. by retelling it and try mm. to persuade everyone how close of a call it was, but. Mm. It was, um, I was deeply frightened in my, in my body as it was frantically trying to, um, keep above water. Mm. And, uh, while my body was in this terror, um, there was something in another part of me that was going like, this might really be it. And I was surrendering to the possibility. Yeah. And it was in those moments that, you know, um, a lot of things that, you know, it's like in the moment of like, I, all these anxieties, all of these stresses, all of these things I thought of focused on were a waste of my time. Mm. And uh, I was, and I, I thought I had several different, very specific thoughts, um, mm. whether it was about my oldest son or, um, just different things. And, uh, in the, there were like, I, I was with a brother and a friend and they weren't going to mm. be able to help me. They just couldn't get to me in time. I could tell. Mm. And then, um, as I was just caught in the current going up and down above the water, suddenly the leash that held, held my, uh, leg to my board that was stuck, mm. suddenly it broke. Uh, mm. It just broke. There was nothing that I did to earn uh, getting free. Uh, I just happened to be lucky enough that my leash broke. And when I was able to get to shore, and uh, as my body just was um, for a really long time, just trying to recover and breathe, um, I was both in a little bit of shock that I had almost drowned and uh, almost an equal shock that I was saved. I was kind of just looking up at the ordinariness of the, mm -hmm. the, the sky. And, and I was really had the sense of like, I've been given a second chance and, and I'm seeing that that moment as a shock point, as a, a moment where, there's a lot of learning to be done. And I revisited, I revisited some writing I eight years before um, on the same river, um, paddleboarding on the same thing. My dog had died mm. and uh, had had a heart attack, drowned on the river. Mm. I mean, and I wrote about it in 2015. Mm. And I wrote about deep, deep, like trying to make these connections. Mm. And returning to a, co I've processed the emo uh, the emotions and and the with a with a coach, and um, what happened. And a couple of people have told me to that to write about it, you know. And mm -hmm. I had revisited this essay that I wrote in 2015, around the time that I disconnected from being a writer. Uh, and so you, you've talked a couple of times in this conversation about the way we disconnect from ourselves. Or I like and, the word dismember and, so that we can remember, but keep going. Yeah, dismember. It's very, it's, uh, and I know that there's a theme in my life where 
where I, when I turn my back on something that I feel like I'm rejecting or that I feel like I was reject, whether it was a relationship or for a long time, having gone to seminary and just really rejecting that I, when I, when I turn my back on something over and over again, I think it's not healthy, but I really, mm -hmm. I really turn away from it and I dismembered from it. And I had this profound, what was profound to me thought that almost like the sense of you don't have the right to mm -hmm. not be a writer. That's who you were. Mm -hmm. That was one of my takeaways is like, don't disconnect from that, which you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And now to connect it all the way to how, when I have been aware, when we are getting in touch with soul questions, what our psyche, what, mm. whether it's God or however we want to say it is trying to tell us they can be dangerous to allow ourselves to really embrace and say yes to because it disrupts what other people in our life might expect from us or what the cultural powers that be might expect from us. There was a period of time where I was like, I rejected being a, seeing myself as just being a writer because I was like, it's not going to pay the bills. I've had my chance and now it's moving forward in these other directions. So um, I'm, you know, not to, I'm, I'm oh, I think it's it's a beautiful story, and it actually is perfectly in line with part of the message because there is something powerful in this near death recollection. And i'll I'll draw an implication from my friend Chad, which is a recollection and remembrance of that which you have dismembered which is that word writer isn't a job. It's a vocation. It's a calling. Calling from whom? It's a calling from God. That's what that word means. And you do not have the right to not lean into, here, I'll turn this around for you, your big self. How dare you? How dare you? And I'll go one step further. You said it was on the same river that your dog passed. What was your dog's name? Huck. What was it? His name was Huck. Huck. Okay, God bless Huck. Okay. And I'm going to get all transpersonally on you. I don't think that it was an accident. I think Huck was the one who pulled you back to you. How dare you not live your big self? And yes, you're right. I 100% agree with you. Leaning into those soulful questions like, how have I benefited from a world that I say I don't want to see exist? That's a hard, painful question. But that is the work. 
That is the transpersonal work. And, you know, if you can bear me being a little bit of a coach. Please. Mm -hmm. There are children who are trying to cross the Rio Grande today. Who are trying to swim to the other side, which is life-giving. You know what it's like to drown or come close to drowning and to lose it all. And as painful as it might be, that is the basis of empathy. You know, the word compassion means to be with the feelings. Compassion with self is to be with our own feelings. Compassion with the other is to be with their feelings. I think that's part of our higher self, our bigger self. I think we're a fundamentally compassionate human, compassionate creatures. And this, you know, maybe that's what you were dragged to the safety. How did you make it out of the water? You said uh, that the leash yeah. broke. Well, I had, yeah, foolishly taken off my PFD moments before all, all of it happened. Um, and uh, what, yeah, once I felt that snap, mm. I couldn't believe it. And I was also so exhausted from the efforts of just trying to stay above water that I barely felt like I could swim, even with the current uh, over mm -hmm. to the shore. My, I had shoes on, but I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough strength to. I felt like risk trying to take off my shoes. I just struggled with every little last bit of what I felt like I had to make it to the shore. So, I'm glad you made it to the shore. I'm glad I'll be playful a little bit. Huck snapped the leash. <laughs> and now that you're on the shore, what is it you will do with this life that you have been given a second chance at? Yeah, yeah. That is, I know, that is, it's a, prof thank you for asking that. And that is a, it's a big question and one that I've been not trying to answer all at once, but like trying to really stay with, mm -hmm. because I really do feel like I've, there is a very strong sense of being given a second chance. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not just going around blithely sharing this. Um, I felt like in this context, it was, um, the way that I, I know that you, you can go into some coaching. <laughs> I felt I like can't I can myself <laughs> share this right now. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but it's this, this, as I have revisited reunion mm -hmm. and been thinking about this conversation, uh, this idea of the psyche and the soul and how we can easily say, listen to your authentic self and try to be there. But there's a reason why 
it's not always comfortable, why we resist it, why we don't always want to know what it has to say, because it may come at a cost. Mm -hmm. That is some of these questions you're asking. Yeah, I'm a pain in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's at least ask this one question that may to make it a little bit more applicable to people, perhaps in organizations. It's just that many people in power fall into the trap of what we call toxic leadership. Uh, And just can you give us some ideas in this context of how we can overcome toxicity? Sure. Um, first of all, let's let's identify that there are very, very few people who act in a toxic way who say to themselves, I would like to be toxic today. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some psychopaths in the world, but but mm-hmm. I like to to segment them out and put them off to the side because that's a completely different podcast, completely different book, completely different coach. That's a therapist. But um, I think that there is something profoundly important, you know, and you'll you'll hear a connective theme into everything that I say. There's something profoundly important in recognizing that whether or not we intended to, our actions have consequences. Our stances can hurt people. We can unintentionally undermine that person's sense of love, safety, and belonging. And um, when we look at the behavior, I found uh, inspiration in Richard Rohr's work, from Richard Rohr's work, uh, specifically on the notion of father hunger. And I expanded that to what I referred to as elder hunger. And a a good way to understand this is somewhat apocryphal story of when young adolescent elephants rampage a village in Southeast Asia, the handlers will often bring over a mature bull elephant to hang out with the adolescents so that the mature bull elephant can swipe them a bit and knock them around a little bit. And I love that image (laughs) because I think so much of what we identify as toxic behavior by those in power, regardless of their gender identity, stems from the lack of an elder who would say things like, sit up straight, eat your vegetables, and be kind. Okay, we are in a world right now where uh, whether it's political power or corporate role power, we lack the the moral guidance from elders. And this is not a new phenomenon. There have been attempts. Desmond Tutu, for example, was part of the elder council, council of elders. And I, I think that we lack this experience of people saying, hey, you're behaving inappropriately. Stop it and sit up straight. And you have a responsibility. 
is it our individualism? Like, is, is, do you think that's part that's of the a, disconnect? That's a, that's a really powerful question. You know, uh, one of the, one of the really fascinating concepts that, I, that, uh, that I enjoyed reading about from the writer, John A. Powell, uh, was the, the consequence of what he refers to as hyper-individualism. It's, 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 um, in its worst expression, it's that, it's that disassociation with a community responsibility that we, we are, we, we, we in the United States in particular, so celebrate individual achievement and mazel tov. It should be great. Look at what you did. You grew up. I'm going to pinch your cheeks, but booby, that's great. <laughs> but we forget the teachers who brought us along, the parents who raised us, the grandparents who made us eat our peas and, and carrots, you know, the, the, the people who came before us and the people who are to our right and to our left. And, you know, right now we're experiencing yet another natural disaster in the state of Hawaii. Buried within all of the news reports of devastation and fires on Maui are the people that Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, used to tell us to always look for. Look for the helpers. Look for the first responders. Look for the people who evacuated from their home, got back in their car, and drove through their neighborhoods to retrieve people who didn't have vehicles. That spirit is the spirit of our elders. And that spirit is too often lost. And the result for those who hold power is a kind of toxicity. I've got my massively huge salary. Why should I pay you anything? Why should we live in a world where the average minimum wage is under $8 an hour. And the average corporate CEO makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, if not millions of dollars. This is not what our elders sacrificed to create. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned kindness, and, and yeah. as you were beginning to say that, and kindness, I think we we easily mistake kindness for niceness. Um, or softness. Right. And it's or, not at all that kindness. No. no. It's, 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 you know, uh, it's almost as if we've declared war on empathy and kindness and compassion. It's almost as if we're so terrified of the possibility of losing something that we have, status, money, power, I don't know, that to admit the possibility of belonging for another person in a community, in a, a doctor's office, in an employment situation, in a voting booth, it's somehow we're going to lose something. 
And one of the takeaways I, I have from understanding the story of my ancestors is that um, they helped each other. It became a bridge. And that, you know, I, I tell the story in reunion of my 18-year-old, when he was 18 years old, my, my mother's father, my grandfather, before he was a citizen, volunteering for, for the draft in World War I. Before he was accepted as an American, willing to give his life. That is a powerful lesson. And it's related to another thing you, you refrain on, which is the share. There's a, it's a paradox. You, you talk about your story is my story. And, that, and that's the emphasis on the communal and the shared value systems. Well, because the, the, the phraseology here is really mm -hmm. important. Yeah. You're right. I talk about the experience that I had that other people would look to me and say, your story is my story. The reason I, I, I stopped, Chad, is because yeah. I do not want to encourage people to project their story onto someone else. But right. I, I'll, I'll give you an instance of this. Um, while I was writing Reunion, I received two messages from two different people on the very, very same day. One was a man who's the CEO of a Fortune 100 company who read Reboot and said to me, effectively, your story is my story. And the other was a man on death row who read Reboot and who said to me, effectively, your story is my story. Wow. Now, okay. the insight that I gained from that is Let's imagine both of them feel that way is true. Then by the art of transitive nature of math, their stories are each other's stories. And the man with the power, the Fortune 100 CEO, let's imagine that he can feel his way into seeing that the man on death row, whatever reason he's on death row, Fair or unfair, I'm, I'm beyond that. Yeah. To see in that other person the possibility of a shared experience. What, if not that, is the definition of empathy? See, we talk about kindness missing. An aspect of kindness is empathy. Now, no one is saying... Unlock the jail cell door, free the person on death row. I don't know his story. But what does it lose us? What does it cost us to see that person the way our wisdom elders would ask us to see that person? As a pained soul in need of comfort. Well, it's, I mean, to, I guess, dis, I understand what, where you're going with wanting to emphasize the the empathy, but you also talk about um, how we're the same, but we're also not the same. 
Yes. Is this is this kind of where what you Yeah, the metaphor that I like is fingers on a hand. Each is an individual expression of the same capacity. But the thumb and the pinky are not the same. And we celebrate the differences while we acknowledge that which is um, which binds us together as a community. Each of us are a finger on the hand. And that celebration, that difference becomes another expression of our acceptance, which then leads to that person feeling loved, safe, and that they belong. Well, and I think that that is that idea of belonging, returning to self, reunion, uh, owning uh, parts of ourselves that we want to be inclined to dismember from uh, is um, it is all related, as you've been saying, um, each of these things. Um, it's a beautiful beautiful book um and yes challenging uh but certainly uh one in which it, it, there's a huge invitation i think there is a huge invitation whether whether we are looking at this um on a macro or micro level or both um what that your book um offers celebrates uh when when does it officially get released into the wild November 14th, pre-orders are open now, um, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, yeah, and I'm super excited, and I want to thank you for the close and careful reading that you did of the book, and, and you know, few things would make, make my heart sing more than uh, you calling it a beautifully written, challenged, <laughs> challenging book, because... That feels like me living into my purpose. Yeah, I think so. I I, I, I think so. Um, thank you for for tuning in to that purpose and 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 being true to it and and sharing it with us. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a delight. We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them to live a more sustainable life, to open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness, and move from surviving to thriving to flourishing. And I think what Jerry Colonna is saying today is that we are complicit. And he, he talks about how we can apply the idea of radical self-inquiry or radical responsibility, asking ourselves, how have we been complicit in creating the conditions we say we don't want, from his first book especially, and broaden it now in the second book to include how have we been complicit in maintaining systems of oppression that we also say we don't want? And more important, what do I need to give up that I love in order to have the systems of belonging that I want? It's a beautiful message, a thoughtful one, 
well worth reflecting on in the days and weeks ahead. But also make no mistake, it's a challenging one. It's a message that challenges us to also what we can do to shift the story and participate in creating a world we say we do love and we want to live in. You know where to find us at bigselfschool.com where we offer one-to-one coaching as well as trainings and workshops for organizations big and small. Here's to seeing you on our next episode of The Big Self Show.